Today is part three in our teaching series in 1 Peter called Hope for Exiles. And so far we've been learning that we as Christ followers are elect exiles. That's what Peter calls us. In other words, we're chosen by God while simultaneously being rejected by the world. And to truly follow Christ, we must understand both of these realities. And that means we always live in a strange tension. You could put it this way. We are both set apart and sent. God has chosen us for his family, which makes us different. And so living in a hostile environment shouldn't surprise us. As exiles, we don't belong here. But God also sends us into the world we're so different from because he wants us to bring more and more children into his family. We are sent to love and reach the very culture we're set apart from, the very culture that sees us as strange and that often rejects us. I told you a couple of weeks ago that God doesn't call us to live as immigrants, as people who make this world their home. He doesn't call us to assimilate into the culture around us to look like everyone else. I also told you that God doesn't call us to be tourists, people who don't want to be here, who who just want God to rapture us out of this mess so they, they don't form any real connection with neighbors. God calls us to live as exiles. This world is not our true home, but right now God has put us here, and so we invest in this new community. We love people. We, we learn the culture, but we don't get too attached because we know we ultimately belong somewhere else. And it's a difficult place to be, a difficult way to live. To navigate this odd, pressure-filled journey, we need guidance. And that's what Peter does throughout his letter. Today, we're going to see that Peter gives us what we might call rules for exiles, principles for living as elect exiles. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And let's read together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Now, there are three commands in these verses, and they give us three rules we need to live by as exiles. Let's unpack them together. Here's the first one. You can write this down in your message notes. Peter tells us, first of all, to fix our hope. Fix your hope. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The heart of this verse is this command, set your hope fully. Everything Peter is saying here flows from these words. So let's take this verse apart. You might pass by that first word, therefore, but it is key to understanding Peter's message. It it refers back to everything Peter has written so far in the first 12 verses. And it's all about our identity, who we are. 
Peter is telling us we have a new identity. You go back to verses 1 through 12 and you see, again, we're elect exiles and we've been born again and we have a living hope and we have an eternal inheritance we can never lose and we have God's Holy Spirit indwelling us. And because of all these blessings, we have the power to rejoice in trials. So no matter how bad life gets, we know the best is yet to come. See, therefore, it tells us that we are to live in the power and hope of our new identity. God has fundamentally changed you, Peter says, so live like it. You know, many Christians never feel good about themselves or constantly seeking approval from others. And I want to tell you something. You will always struggle with insecurity as long as you fail to believe what God says about you. Our identity is not based on our performance or on the world's standards. Our identity is in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And Peter is just telling us, live according to who you are in God's eyes. You might think of it like this. See your life according to God's story. If you try to find your identity in anything else but in how God sees you and and what God is doing in your life, God's eyes, God's story, it will always shrivel and it will eventually destroy your life. So Peter says with verses 1 through 12 in mind, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is urging us to set our hope exclusively on what God has promised to us as our eternal inheritance. And what is that? Well, it is that we will know Christ and we will be like Christ. And one day we will get to be with Christ in a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, and all the sad things will come untrue. He says to set your hope fully on God's grace. And this means we don't water it down with anything. It's fully, it's completely So how do Christians water it down? Well, they do that by setting their hope, their happiness on other things. Other things they think God needs to provide them for them to be happy. See, it's like I'm I'm glad to know Christ and I'm glad to be like Christ and that promise to be with Christ one day is great, but I, I really need you, God, also to provide me with good health and good kids and a great marriage and and lots of money. And then when God doesn't come through on one of those things, we accuse God of letting us down. I want to ask you, what has to happen in your life for you to feel like God loves you and God's keeping his promises to you? You know, there are a lot of things I want God to provide for me. I mean, I hope he gives me health and success in my work. I even ask him to give me prosperity financially, and he's a good father, so I anticipate he may give me a lot of those things. But my hope My hope is in knowing Christ and being like Christ and being with Christ. And so if in God's plan I I do without some of those things or I suffer, I will still be satisfied because my hope is in who God is for me and what God is doing in me. You know, we, we love Romans 8, 28, which says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? In verse 29, Paul says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. In other words, to know Christ and to become like Christ. That's how all things are working together for good. 
You know, lots of us memorize verse 28, but we don't go on to memorize verse 29, which tells us what that good purpose is. So, so yes, ask God to bless you. Ask God to take care of you now. But put your hope in knowing Christ, being like Christ, and being with Christ. And if sometimes that's all he gives you, you'd just be satisfied with that. So how do we do this? Set our hope fully on Christ and what he has done for us and what he has promised for us. Peter in this verse speaks of two things. We see first that he speaks of in that phrase, preparing your minds for action. Now in Greek, this is a very strange phrase for us because literally it says to gird up the loins of your mind. You know, most of us probably don't think that loins and the mind go together. Maybe for some of us, but I probably shouldn't say any more about that. But this made perfect sense to the people that Peter wrote to because men in that day, they all wore these long flowing robes, which was fine until you needed to work hard or or run fast or do battle. And so when they needed to, they would tie their robes up around their hips, enabling them to move. Today, we might say something like roll up your sleeves or lace up your shoes or buckle your seatbelts or maybe even pull yourself together or it's time to get going. In other words, Dress for the battle. Have you ever shown up somewhere disastrously underdressed or overdressed? Sometimes it, it just results in social embarrassment. A friend invites you, you know, to do some home construction, but you show up thinking it was a dinner party and you're wearing really nice clothes when you need to have work boots and jeans. But the worst thing would be for you to show up for a battle and you thought you were going to the beach. And your opponent has weapons and body armor and you have a swimsuit and flip-flops. That's not just embarrassing, that's life-threatening. And yet this is exactly what many Christians do when it comes to spiritual things. Peter says this, that they don't take the battle seriously, that they're lazy in their approach to Scripture and they, they rarely uh, pray and plead for God's strength. They don't take temptation seriously, so they don't have accountability. They flirt with temptation often. They, they treat sin and compromise in their lives lightly. You know, the bad thing with most sin is maybe not the action in itself, but that you give Satan a foothold into your life. And by the way, I know that I'm talking to someone right now that is entertaining a sin. You're in a relationship that your godly friends are worried about or you're starting a relationship you know is wrong. You're looking at porn. You're doing something unethical at work. See, you've given a foothold to the devil and he will destroy you with it. I am telling you from the Holy Spirit, don't play around. You know, some Christian parents, they don't take seriously the battle going on in their kids' hearts. And I don't care if they're in public school, private school, or homeschool. God holds you as a parent responsible to shape your children's hearts and to protect them from the lies the enemy is trying to seduce them with. Peter is going to say later on in chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, if I, as a parent, knew there was a predator loose in my neighborhood and I just let my kids go out completely unsupervised, how would I not be considered a delinquent parent? Listen, a far more dangerous enemy than any sexual predator is hunting your child and his name is Satan and he is using the winsome lies of the culture to destroy your children. So wake up, wake up and get dressed. 
Clothe your mind in Scripture. Bathe your heart in prayer. And then that second phrase, being sober-minded, it's closely linked. Peter is saying, avoid being mentally intoxicated. Don't allow addictions or habits to take over your life because when they do, you are putting your hope in them. So be alert and be disciplined. Live with the awareness that Christ is coming again one day and that Satan is your enemy right now. So how do we do that? Well, we use our minds. We read and we study God's word. We put God's truth into our minds. And as we do, our hearts and our lives are changed. I read an incredible story this week. It's about a man named George Hall. He was an Air Force colonel who served during the Vietnam War. In college, before he went into the service, he was a captain on the golf team. He had a handicap of four. On September 27, 1965, he was shot down over North Vietnam, and he got checked into the Hanoi Hilton. He was mentally and physically tortured. He was starved. He was kept in solitary confinement for over seven years. And while most people would lose their minds, George Hall disciplined his mind. Each day, he mentally played multiple rounds of golf. And his visualizations were so extremely detailed. They included everything about the golf courses, everything about hitting the ball off the tee, raking the sand traps, feeling the wind, and then finally putting that ball into the hole. He, he called these courses he built into his mind his pebble beach. And he did this all in a filthy prison cell by himself in the dark for over seven years every day playing rounds of golf while he was there he lost over 100 pounds he was physically weakened emaciated when he was released finally on February 12 1973 one of the first things he wanted to do was play a real game of golf so he was invited to to play in the greater New Orleans Open And while he was there, he shot an incredible 76. When the reporter who was covering this suggested that his performance was just a case of beginner's luck, he said, luck? I haven't three-putted a green in over five years. See, despite his physical deterioration and despite not stepping on a real golf course for over seven years, his body had developed muscle memory based solely on his strong imagination, on the disciplining of his thoughts. And that's what Peter is telling us. It's very similar. He says we fix our hope. Fix your hope. I'm using this word fix with a double meaning. Sometimes we say we, we fix our gaze on something, and that speaks of our focus and our intention, and, and we need to do that with our hope. But, but maybe more often we use the word fix to speak of repair, and that fits here too, because some of us have a damaged hope. Some of us have false hopes. We, we put our hopes on the wrong people or in the wrong things, and so we need to repair and renew our hope. And this can happen sometimes to us, even when we know that true hope is in God. In fact, that's what Peter's talking about in verse 14. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, before you came to Christ, your life aspirations came out of a wrong way of looking at the world. Peter says, desires of your former ignorance. In other words, wrong desires that grew out of wrong ways of looking at the world. You thought that making lots of money would make you happy. 
And then you saw that the people with the most money often didn't seem to be very happy. Maybe you thought romance, relationships were the key. Not too long ago, hip-hop star Drake said this in an interview. He said, there was a point where I felt I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I'd convince myself to do it again. But during that time, I knew it wasn't working. Or actor Matt Dillon recently said this. Most Hollywood people are relationship junkies. You get high off of a relationship like a drug, then crash off of it, and so you go from one hit to the next. Or or maybe you thought it was all about being liked by other people. I'm reminded about what Katy Perry posted on Instagram last year. Maybe you saw it. She wrote, 100 million digital singles and still insecure. Maybe, maybe you thought you'd find this by being the best. Anyone else watch that Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, this last spring? I mean, here is a guy who is literally the best there ever was, and yet it did not lead him to happiness, but the emptiness. See, you assumed that life with you in charge would make you happy, but something woke you up to the fact that it just wasn't true. Maybe you just considered the cross And you thought, if Jesus is true, then the way of rebellion against God leads only to death. Real life must only be found in Jesus. And so you turned your back on your self-willed way of living. And you surrendered to Christ. And then you showed that by being baptized, by declaring that you were being buried to your old way of living. You were being raised to new life in Christ. See, Peter is reminding us here that it's so easy to fall back into those old ways of living. You sense some unhappiness or discontent in your life, and it's easy for you to begin thinking again, I just need more money. I just just need a different relationship, or I need to get revenge on someone. Peter is saying in verse 14, don't forget, those old desires never work, so don't go back there. Those old desires, he says, they just came out of ignorance. You didn't know what was true. So if you're struggling right now, if you're unhappy right now, Peter says to you, fix your hope on knowing Christ, on being like Christ, and on being with Christ one day. Is there something in your life right now that you tend to run back to? Do you need to turn from that thing right now? See, here's a question you should regularly ask yourself. Is my hope fully in Jesus, fully in how God sees me? In other words, who I am in God's eyes. Is my hope fully in what God has done in me? In other words, in God's story that he's writing through me? Or is my hope just partly in Jesus and partly in other things? Peter is telling us to make it as an exile. You've got to fix your hope. There's a second command in this passage, and we find it in this next verses that we're going to look at. And it gives us our second rule for exiles. I'm gonna give it to you this way. Write this down in your notes. Live out of sync. Live out of sync. You know, we're always trying to sync stuff up these days, right? But as Christ followers, we should live out of sync with the world. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Most Americans today don't see holiness as a positive thing. It's more often used as an insult to say someone thinks they're better than anyone else. And most people think it's about keeping strange religious rules, about living an out-of-touch life. You know, the, the church lady, she's holy, or your weird neighbor is holy. On The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is holy and very strange. You know, Ned was part of the Holy Rollers, the, the bowling team in Springfield that would go to tournaments wearing monks' robes and accompanied by a choir. But the Hebrew word for holy is the word kadesh, and it's not that. It literally means to cut away. And the idea is about being set apart, about being separated for a special purpose. And, and when it's used in reference to God, it speaks of his perfection, his completeness, of his wholeness. In fact, you can, you can see the relationship between the English words holiness and wholeness. Holiness is holy, perfect goodness, holy, perfect justice, holy, perfect integrity and love. And we want that, right? I mean, perfect justice, perfect beauty, perfect love. I mean, no girl wants to marry a guy who's only partially truthful, partially faithful, partially loving, and who wants a government that's partially just and partially unjust. By contrast, God is holy. So that tells us God is pure goodness. And that means that things like injustice and impurity and deception well, those things are repulsive to him. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says that God is of such pure eyes that he cannot behold evil. Now, that doesn't mean that evil is invisible to him. It just means he can't look at it with neutral emotion. Think about watching something you find repulsive. Torture, injustice, abuse maybe of a child. You, you see a movie or a documentary on, on cruelty, maybe on the damages of marital infidelity or racial injustice, and, and you can't stay neutral. You just react viscerally. That's what God is like with all unholiness. And when this word holy gets applied to us, it speaks of our difference from the world. We're set apart. We're cut away. In other words, we're not in sync. And this means that we will seem weird to the people around us because God has made us new persons. You know, sometimes, though, especially under pressure, we are not sure that we want to be different, that we want to be holy, and it can be very tempting for us to just go along with the world's flow. I ran across this story this last week that supposedly came from the San Jose Police Department about a police officer taking an exam for a promotion. And one of the exam's essay questions read like this. It said, you're on patrol in San Jose when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. You investigate. There's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your chief who is out of town on vacation. Then a passing motorist stops to offer you assistance and you realize that he is a man also wanted for armed robbery. Then suddenly a man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. And then another man starts crying for help having been blown into a reservoir by the explosion and he says he cannot swim. Describe in a few words what actions you would take. And as the story goes, 
The officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen, and then he wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. You all feel like that sometimes, right? But here's the truth. If you don't seem a little strange to everyone around you, isn't it possible that you're more like the world than you are like God? Isn't it possible that you're not actually born again, but you're still a member of the world's family and not God's family? I mean, just think how holiness changes us. Think practically. Let me just ask a few questions. How about this? Financially, are you out of sync with this world? You know, if you are doing with your money what God says to do, you're going to be at least three steps behind the people who make the same amount of money as you. Let me explain. The average person who lives around us likely carries around $15,000 in credit card and other unsecured debt. And God tells us as much as possible to live without debt. So if we are following God's wisdom, we're not spending above our income for the latest TVs or the newest cars or, or luxury vacations. God also tells you to give away at least the first 10% to him, which the world does not do. And then third, he tells you to save wisely, which most people also don't do. That will put you at least three steps behind everyone else who makes the same amount as you. And you cannot help but see this in real life. You will drive different cars. You will live in smaller homes. You will wear different clothes and go on different vacations. And if your spending habits don't differ from everyone around you in significant ways, then you may be more like the world than you realize. You may have reason to question if you are truly a citizen of heaven. In Leviticus, where where Peter is quoting from with this command to be holy, God commanded the Israelites to leave the edges of their fields unharvested. They were only to harvest the middle of the field. They were to leave the edges easily accessible for the poor so that poor people could come by and glean there and have food to eat. And, And no one else in the ancient world did that. Like most business people today, farmers would try to wring out every last cent of profit from their yield because that's just smart business. But you know, God wanted Israel to be different so that foreigners would walk past Israelite fields And they would look and they would say, why didn't you harvest the edges? And then God's people, they could say, it's because we serve a God who cares for the poor and shares with the poor. And so we do also. Now, I'm not saying that being wealthy is sinful, but you need to have edges. If you're wealthy, you'll have bigger fields so you can harvest more, but you should also have bigger edges. How about this? Are you sexually out of sync with the world? I've always loved the words of Augustine. And when he said that Christians were most out of sync with the world in their relationship with three things. And he said those three things were money and power and sex. You know, the world is stingy with its money, but promiscuous with its sex. Christians, by contrast, are promiscuous with their money and with power, but are stingy with their sex. The exact opposite. And we do that because we know sex represents a love like God's love, where you you give yourself entirely to someone. And we also know that our resources are to be used like Jesus would use them, which means they they are poured out to bless and to help other people. And so we are crazy generous with our money. Let me just ask you, are you out of sync with the world? Or how about this? Are you out of sync with the world in how you handle anger or frustration? 
People in the world rage and seek vengeance or they avoid conflict and harbor grudges and tear down with gossip. But what did Jesus do? He never sought vengeance. He confronted selflessly and patiently and then he forgave and and then he moved on. And he kept no record of wrongs. We are to be holy like Jesus. We are to be separate in how we act, showing that we have a different hope and a different judge and a different perspective on life than everyone around us. And then here's the fourth rule for exiles. Live with fear. Now you may be thinking right now, wait a minute, but, but hold on. I want you to listen and I want you to think carefully. Here's where this comes from. Look at verse 17 where Peter writes these words. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now the command here is in those words, conduct yourselves with fear. And literally, Peter is saying we should live in fear. He's talking about our behavior, how we live our lives. And this seems to be the exact opposite of what we usually say the gospel message is. You know, perfect love casts out fear. We like to say that. But the best way to think of fear here is the word awe, which is actually how many versions translate this word. We are to live in awe. Well, why should we live in awe? Peter says that we pray to a God, we pray to a God who judges impartially. Our God will judge everyone fully and impartially based on what they did and why they did it. And no one's going to get away with injustice. Peter goes on in verses 18 and 19. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the same God who will judge everyone impartially, he gave Christ for us to satisfy God's judgment against us. And though our deeds and motives were bad like everyone else's, Peter says, God redeemed us by suffering judgment in our place. Think about this. To save us, it cost God something immense. He didn't save us through some trifling gesture, a wave of a wand, or or some, some set of rules for us to keep. He gave his own son to be cursed and humiliated and tortured in. And that, that should make us stand in reverent awe. Do you know these classic hymn lyrics? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Here's another one. See from his head, his hand, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet or joy compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. When we truly understand how much our salvation costs, how great God's judgments against us was, how much he paid to save us, it it makes us stand in wonder of God. It it makes us afraid of being apart from him ever again. It makes us uh, bow in awe of the treasure that he has now given us. It's fear. 
but it's confident fear. It's a fear of what your life would be like without God and awe about how secure you are with him. Friends, there is no one like our God. There is none beside our God. He is worthy of all our praise, all the praise that we could ever bring him. I want you to listen to the final two verses, verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter is trying to tell us that our redemption, our salvation is stunning. Before time began, in eternity past, God ordained that Jesus, his son, would die on the cross for our sins. In history then, at Calvary, he did die and he paid the price for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead, thereby defeating sin and death. And then God exalted Jesus to his right hand in heaven in great, great glory. Nothing, nothing in the universe is more amazing than our salvation. That is why we can have faith and we can have hope in God even when the world rejects us even when we suffer trials, even when we feel away from home, because we are. If we want to make it in this world that God created in great glory and great beauty, this world that sin has defaced and sin has damaged, we have to remember we are elect exiles. The world may reject us, but God, our Father, has chosen us. We are his children. We are members of his family. And that, friends, that will never change.